0: society and apparently pigeons, though we haven't really investigated that yet. This is Liz Taylor of Monash University. So as part of the 2019 Festival of Urbanism, I'll be hosting one of the events. It's at the Toffin Town on Swanson Street in the city on the evening of Monday, September 2nd. I've called it Living in the Music City if you've got a spare half a million. The main idea of this event is to look at how live music and nighttime economy are shaped by the cost and availability of housing. I'll be looking at or we'll be looking at this topic through a combination of academic panel discussion and live song performances. It includes a panel discussion and music partly because it's more fun and partly because it's always strange to talk about music without actually including music. As in a 1979 quote best attributable to comedian Martin Mull that quote writing about music is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> That's quite a funny idea actually. Or an older quote from a 1918 New Republic article that writing about music is as illogical as singing about economics. Although we might try a bit of the latter. Because singing about economics, we know we do that both now and in 1918. Singing about economics does happen and you don't have to look far for songs with words like money or dollar or rent in them. Music and economics are never really that separate of each other although they don't always get along. Perhaps they could be best described as frenemy bandmates, making lovely music together, but secretly hoping for solo careers. In both the panel and in the songs, we'll be examining the past and future of Melbourne's live music venues in the context of the city's housing pressures. Melbourne is known, or it's certainly branded now, for its music scenes, both past and present. But this can sit in tension with rising land and housing prices, which are themselves something of a, a price of success. But who can afford to live in a music city? The first half of the event title, The Music City, derives from a three-year research project that several Monash University academics are involved in, called Interrogating the Music City, Cultural Economy and Popular Music in Melbourne. That research is producing both a history of the pop and rock music scenes in Melbourne from the mid-1950s to the present, and an analysis of the usefulness of the concept of the music city for understanding the role of popular music in the cultural economy of cities internationally. Shane Homan, Seamus O'Hanlon and Catherine Strong from that project will be on the panel on September 2nd. The second half of the event title, if you've got a spare half a million, is a reference to the Courtney Barnett 2016 song to Preston. The title of the song is a not quite affectionate nickname for the middle to outer suburb of Melbourne, Preston, which does have something of a grim grey flatness to it that one could easily describe as depressing, even if real estate listings do not I personally think it's because much of Preston is north of Bell Street, where everything was built post-1950s, around car parking requirements. But that's just my bent. I won't play de Preston here because copyright stuff, but the song and the film clip, which ironically seems to have been filmed in Reservoir, another nearby suburb, is definitely worth checking out, and also, ironically, I did read that the event that inspired Courtney Barnett to write the song, which was a visit to a house inspection, was actually in neighbouring Coburg. So in a way, Preston is Preston, but it's also anywhere. The song's lyrics, beginning with, You said we should look out further. I guess it wouldn't hurt us. We don't have to be around all these coffee shops. Refer not only to the spatial dynamics of the cost of housing in Melbourne, but to migration and change in the city generally. Concentrations of things like public transport, cafes, pubs, music venues have for some decades been associated with concentrated demand for housing, including from wealthier professional people, hence gentrification. This pressure then causes others, particularly poorer people, renters, both categories which tend to include younger people and musicians, to then move further out where housing is lower priced. This then attracts new coffee shops and new residents, driving prices up and other people further outwards, and the cycle continues, or at least. Everything except a public transport, that part doesn't ever seem to move further out in Melbourne. The song describes attending a house inspection of a Californian bungalow in Preston with, quote, a garage for two cars to park in. It seems depressing. Through a real estate agent, we learn that the house is relatively cheap because it's a deceased estate. The spare half a million line repeated at the end of the song refers not to the cost of a typical house because half a million is roughly half the price of a house in Preston now. But to a flippant remark made by the the real estate agent that while the house might need some renovation, with enough finance, it could just be demolished and rebuilt. If you've got a spare half a million, you could knock it down and start rebuilding. Which then sits in contrast to the signs still remaining in the house itself of a now-dead woman and her life lived within it. Then I see the handrail in the shower, a collection of those canisters for coffee, tea and flour, and a photo of a young man in a van in Vietnam. You don't know who this person was, but you do get a sense of mortality, of presence and absence, and of how much that juts up against the commodification side of housing. Old houses go, new ones come. Houses are bought and sold, often on the strength of a dream of how a life might be rebuilt there. Money is variously made by homeowners, or lost by renters, in housing, while layers of marginalisation build up across a market-based city. Controls like heritage protections or zoning are partly about trying to keep a connection to past lives and past ways of living. But even if an old house or a music venue still stands, the person who lived in it or made music in it is gone, or at least they're not the person they were before. Music itself, like other kinds of storytelling, often provides something of a longer-lasting connection to the past and to youth than does the built environment or a place, which is not to understate the place side, but... that's that's an aspect of music, because it seems to hold a kind of passport to the foreign country of the past. As a more extreme example, a quick search on music and memory will reveal the importance of music as a research field for dementia and Alzheimer patients. You can find numerous uncanny examples of patients responding to music, and particularly to favourite songs, long after other mental abilities and ways of accessing memories have faded, which is no small feat. Like the quote by L.P. Hartley, The past is a foreign country, they do things differently there. Which is in fact the opening line of his 1953 novel, The Go-Between, which is the namesake for seminal Australian band The Go-Betweens, whose 1988 song, Street of Your Town, also inspired Courtney Barnett's De Preston. The Go-Betweens also have a bridge named after them in Brisbane now. I'm not sure what to make of it, but it's somewhere between memory and bridges, places and songs. The Living in the Music City Festival of Urbanism discussion, it's going to be partly about the practicalities of popular music in Melbourne, how spaces for music, like Melbourne's famous pub rock venues, can survive conflict with new housing and new residents, how to appropriately memorialise music in cities, or thinking about how venues and musicians, or anyone really, can afford space in a competitive city. Music may be valued by some, but it certainly doesn't pay well. I'm hoping that the panel discussion and the songs will also venture into the broader topic of the places where music is made and how music in turn makes sense of a time and a place and part provides a sort of bridge back to it. Technically humans don't need music or songs, but there are zero signs that they've ever lived without it or that they will give it up anytime soon. If you want to make sense of a human organism like a city, you could certainly do worse than to start with music. So for this episode of This Must Be The Place, it's not any really new material, I've looked back over This Must Be The Place podcast. By the way, the name comes from a song. It's a talking head song. This Must Be The Place, brackets, naive melody, although it's wonderful how people think the name comes from something else. I looked back over the podcast for over two years, roughly, and found some uh, example episodes where we've talked about aspects of live music and its relationship to cities and places. David Nichols, my sometime co-host, writes about music history a lot, so there's actually a fair bit in there, and this is just a sample. I've got seven short clips here to present from the archives, so it's kind of reruns Best Of, Hits Out, is that a really Australian thing, Hits Out 1988. or maybe a nicer wording would be a curated selection, Best Of, This Must Be The Place On Music. First up, we have part of an interview with Associate Professor Seamus O'Hanlon, who will be one of the panellists at the Music City event here he's talking about how much the inner suburbs of Australian cities have been transformed over the past, decades, past few decades, economically, demographically and physically. He describes how the section of Carlton between RMIT and Melbourne University was desolate really in the 1980s, but it's now transformed by the enormous industry that is international students. Uh, drawing on his book City Life, Seamus goes on to discuss how the conditions of pub rock and live music in Australia were byproducts, in a sense of the sudden exposure of Australian industry to globalised trade and the abandoned spaces it created. Cheap inner city spaces were filled by music and by musicians, and by other people on low or fixed incomes. It's an unrecognisable city to today.
1: The international student one is really quite fascinating because you know they didn't exist a generation ago. They simply did not exist. Um, I write about how in the, it was a decision in 1985, I think it was, by the whole global government to open up the market to international. There'd been the Colombo Plan students before that. And there was a few of them in the, in the 18, 1980s, early 1990s, there was a few thousand. Years. There's now half, over half a million, and most of them are in Melbourne and Sydney, and most of them are in the centre of Melbourne and Sydney. And again, and not only are they changing the universities in all sorts of ways, they're also changing the culture of the city, but uh, again, as, as with my earlier work, they're changing the physical fabric of the city. So, so where we're sitting here at RMIT, just across the road from us, is essentially this gigantic student village is being built.
0: Yeah, if you're sitting, uh, we're in a slightly more hedged-in building now. But if you're on the Swanson Street buildings, every day you become more and more aware of this uh, physical expanse of, of the student accommodation and the apartments that are built mainly
1: for students yeah, yeah student village. yeah and the interesting thing it, it's here but and, and in the sort of that corridor up to melbourne uni and you see it in sydney around um, broadway and uh, uts etc is this used to be the heartland of the textile clothing and footwear industries. and they're gone you know they were wiped out by globalization and tariff changes etc and there was a lull a few years where they, these places basically sat empty. I mean, when I was studying at Melbourne Uni in the late 1980s, that walk between here and Melbourne Uni was a ghost town. It's
0: like kicking a can down the street. Yeah,
1: yeah. And now it's just wall-to-wall student accommodation and all the facilities that have been created for those students, like restaurants and bars and, you know, and the, you know, we all look at working in universities now that have libraries that look more like cafes than libraries that mm. we remember them because... It's an industry, it's an enormous industry.
0: This is something that's been, I guess, explored by, from a kind of cultural perspective or from the point of view of gentrification, but you speak about the music, live music as an industry, or arts as an industry, and that perilous relationship they have between the economy space. They need space yeah. to do these things, but often success means, you know, that... Yeah. There's no room for you anymore, so... You're just on the move all the time. Yeah, just I thought you, look, you brought a time dimension
1: to that. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, again, th- this is reflecting my own sort of story. I mean, I was living in St Kilda in the late 1980s, and I you know, we used to come over to Melbourne earlier than that, and there were just all these venues, all these pubs, in St Kilda and Fitzroy, and they'd been in Carlton and places like that. And... Um, mm-hmm. The dining rooms, they were often the dining rooms of old pubs, mm. and they were pretty much redundant. What to do with them? Well, stick a band in them. And that's what people did. And they were living nearby, you had a ready-made audience, etc. But as they became more successful, there was the issue of the um, neighbours complaining and the gentrifying neighbours complaining. But there was also, you know, this, in some ways this was very much a Melbourne thing because we didn't have poker machines. Yep. And, um, you need
0: to put something
1: in there yep. you can't put poker machines in there yeah, and so easy. to generate an income and then when poker machines I mean Sydney's poker machines were in clubs so they always had a very different scene uh, but uh, when the poker machines came they, they generate far more income than does a band yeah. uh, I mean the other thing that's quite fascinating about the, the whole music scene etc is that it's one, another one of those things that governments are desperate to get their hands on, to say, look at us, look at us, aren't we great, we're a music industry. In another project I'm working on, it's around that, it's what makes a city a music city. Mm. And uh, governments want to know because they want to be able to do it. Without
0: spending
1: any money. Without spending any money. But there's, you know, this, I'm going to sound like a libertarian or a Thatcher right here when I say this, but often the worst thing that can happen is for governments to get involved because yeah. they make a mess of it you know, the, they want it, they bureaucratise it and they have to, well, whereas like if you just leave everyone alone, they'll have fun, it'll be fine. This is going
0: on your record, you're I right. Know. but I know <laughs> what, as I'm a musician as well, so mm. I, I know what you mean, you, you, there's a common or rule of thumb thing that as soon as the government's involved in anything about music, then the, the, what comes out is usually just that little bit more you know? shit. <laughs> <laughs> For example, I mean, it's not in your book, but as an example, there's the whole, there's busking, busking's a tough gig already, but, you know, there's... Processes introduced where you had to audition to be a busker,
2: yeah, yeah.
1: and it's yeah. like, oh, well, yeah, yeah. well intentioned, but there's also the Faustian bargain, isn't there? I, uh, mm. I, I've talked about this before. though. when you're young and trying to make your mark, your appeal is your anger, your outsiderness, etc. You know, when you've been sort of gigging around for thirty years and you still haven't got a decent income, then yeah, you take a government handout. But um, you know, when you're in order to attract a new audience, you have to say something new, and so we, in,
0: in a sense, we need to. We're in this cycle where we have to produce angry young people because we like the music they make.
1: Yeah, um, well, and they also they, they appeal to their peers. Yeah, but allowing allowing them to have space to do that is yeah. is the, the really difficult one. And, and it it
0: probably, I think, as you're alluding to, is trying. To, governments getting involved is usually less effective than you know, the outcome of just an economic downturn and like, and, and it's, I mean, you saying like in the 90s you could live in, in Melbourne or Berlin or whatever on a very low or fixed income mm. and and have a decent quality of life, which is...
1: But I, I cooked because I was in my 20s and I didn't care. Mm-hmm. If I was a factory worker, it wasn't that way. And yeah. I don't know whether, uh, you know, if as someone who's got a family and responsibilities, I'd like to be living that life as well. So it's... it's so difficult.
0: So that was James O'Hanlon. In this next clip from the archives, I spoke with Sam Whiting, a PhD candidate and lecturer in popular culture at RMIT, and Sarah Taylor, my sister, who completed a PhD on historical geography of live music in Sydney and Melbourne. This episode was recorded outside the Curtin Hotel in Carlton, a live music m- venue. It was based around unpacking some musician biographies, including Phil Collins' I'm Not Dead Yet, and others with more legitimacy, more cred, sorry. Uh, in this section from that interview, we discuss research on small live music venues in Melbourne and their roles in different genres, different times, and the roles of small venues in other cities. We also talk about the risks of museumification, if that's the word, of music history. I can see Sarah's got a list. I've got a list. Maybe we should hear first about what Sam's PhD topic is.
3: My PhD is on small live music venues, looking at how they work as social hubs for music scenes, and also places where emerging acts kind of get their first break. Uh, It sort of looks at the spatial kind of aspects of live music venues but mainly is hinged on ideas of converting cultural capital, like the cultural capital of the space and um, the booking agent and the bartenders and the staff, converting that cultural capital into social capital by way of the social connections and mainly economic capital finally in like getting money over the bar.
0: And yeah. you're looking at, at venues now or you've
3: got a historical totally. viewpoint as well? Um, both, but mainly ethnography of the two venues, the Old Bar and the Tote in Melbourne's in the North. So specifically looking at those as case studies, trying to get a sense of how small live music venues work to kind of facilitate the grassroots of music scenes and maybe
0: Sarah, you should give a bit of a spiel on your PhD you yep. and have you m- interviewed musicians for your yeah yeah okay that's cool because that's very fun I have to say interviewing musicians for my PhD I looked at the historical geography of live music in Sydney and Melbourne so looking back in time through the 80s and 90s up to the mid 2000s when um, on the one hand that's pretty much the end well not the end but uh, a transition period from purely print me- media into, although surprisingly the street press is still actually quite robust. But that aside, that's, if you look at that time period from the early 80s to the mid 2000s, that's when a lot changed for Australian live music and what I would consider the norms of how venues work and probably what Sam's encountering now, became normal, because they certainly weren't always like that. So it's a transition period in which Sydney seemed to fare a lot worse, and yes, it did, but the outputs of the PhD were to look at what we mean by, you know, it got worse, what do we mean by decline? And it was hugely spatial. Yes, things declined, but that didn't mean that there were fewer gigs or fewer venues or anything like that. It's just that they were sort of squashed into a smaller area, and you had some venues where a lot of stuff happened, like the old bar. or Hunter's Club, which was around for a while, Esplanade, hey, all those sorry. sorts of places. You. <laughs> no a disproportionate number of gigs of having at certain places, and in Sydney it was a little bit more scattered. And what you would see through that period is a lot of musicians who may have, in the 80s, moved to Sydney, just sk- hoppy, hop-skipping past that, um, especially as things got harder in the 90s, and hopping on to Melbourne. And, then, and I was able to at least have a vague excuse during my PhD, and in the years since, to read musician biographies. They're very entertaining. Sometimes they're just stupid, and sometimes they go on about drug use and stuff like that. But also in the PhD, I got to interview musicians, not like always famous musicians, like the whole spectrum of them, about how they got started doing gigs and what their experiences were with live music. A big break. Well it's not even the big it's the venues and the people and the agents that people get started on in the music industry. You gotta go to a venue. I remember in the Phil mm. Collins book he mm-hmm. said, well weirdly he grew up in London and was in the performing arts or something. He was went it? to a performing arts school that his mum ran.
2: Yeah. His <laughs> well um,
0: connected <laughs> his big break was as the artful dodger in a a you know a I don't know if it was on the West End, but it was, I think it was proper West End production of Oliver! Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so he always had that slightly not quite rock and roll thing happening, but I think it served him well later. Yeah. But he started gigging a lot, he joined other bands, helped that he could play the drums, mm-hmm. doing lots of gigs. In all the musician biographies I've read, um, the only ones who really didn't get started at a venue were like very, very well off backgrounds who maybe got you know, got placed on uh, a soap show and then moved into something else. You know. TV. That's a slight there's a there's a subgenre of pop stars which I like Delta Goodrum, Olivia Newton John, um, and Kylie, they're very good at what they do but they don't that's not the entry point for them. They have to come in another way, but everybody else yeah, to start gigging, so they know musicians know where to go. So, Simon, yeah. your yeah. your venues are the tote and the old bar, and you mm. do you speak to people that really they move to Melbourne or they come to this area or they seek these venues out because they have entry level. Gigs? Yeah,
3: yeah. Uh, what I've found interesting is that a lot of the people that are involved in those venues, staff, musicians, and otherwise, aren't actually from Melbourne.
0: That's so true! That's yeah. so true! Where are they from? Regional
3: Victoria, Tassie, Brisbane, some Sydney siders who mm-hmm. were sick of the scene there. Um, and they all kind of come together because they hear you know, the, the, the myth of rock authenticity that surrounds the toad, for example. Mm-hmm. And like, how it's the home of rock. And you've got to play the toad if you want to make it. What uh, if you don't
0: want to make it, you just got to play there anyway? Or does yeah. everyone want to make it? That's, a, that's another
3: question. Well, that's I think is. if you're like if you're inclined to sort of ascribe to this narrative, like authentic rock or like just live, the live music scene in Australia in general, like the toad is somewhere that you have to play at least once. Do
0: you think that's based on the, I guess, biographies of particular artists, or is it... It, the place sustains its own mythology.
3: Because I, think, I think it sustains its own mythology. It definitely like perpetuates its own mythology with like mm-hmm. documentary yeah. films mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Like the whole slam rally and it being closed before during uh, like, you know, the late 2000s and mm-hmm. then reopening, yep. great fanfare. Um, basically um, it means that it's been kind of like, it's got this place in Australian rock history that's fairly set. But also, it's interesting, having spoken to the management there, they're really aware of it becoming a museum. <laughs> um, and they don't want that. Like, they want to, like, keep the tote what makes it the tote, keep that kind of narrative of rocking for 30 years, sort of thing. But. Rich Stanley, the current book, has done a really good job of like pushing forward in terms of the genres that are represented there, and also like the the people. It's very open genre genre wise. It's not pure rockism. I was there on Sunday night, like on a whim, and there was some like electro um, pop duo playing just in the main band room, like like opening for a bunch of other bands and it was like very non-Tote music but like on that stage with quite a few people in the room mm-hmm. um, and I think they're quite open to to new forms of music as long as it aligns with that kind of underground mm-hmm. that makes the toad like that sort of sticky carpet you know Melbourne rock institution that it is
0: what about how does that contrast to the old bar that has less I would say less of a um, well known locals love it but it's not famous right is it
4: famous in
3: the state I think it's famous amongst musicians that tour to Melbourne in the state it's definitely got it's own thing going on but just because it's smaller like bands you don't play there unless you kind of like are a smaller band or you're playing your first shows in Melbourne sort of thing but Mm -hmm. like Camp Cope who are quite big now um and you know, they're about to play like the headline show at Sydney Opera House. I remember that they would play the old bar maybe like once every two weeks in the first six months of their existence, like on a Tuesday night. Yeah. And like that was where they kind of gained a following. And practiced
0: in a yeah. sense. Yeah. And, yeah, and
3: sort of like got their chops up to record their first album. And then like, because Sarah Thompson, their manager, is so devoted to the space and such a close friend of the owners, Manager and drummer, my dude. Uh, <laughs> oh. She, they've given back and they've played like surprise, secret Sunday afternoon shows that have sold out in minutes. So, mm. like, I think it's a matter of size and also a matter of time. Like, mm-hmm. they just haven't been around long enough.
0: Mm-hmm. How um, old is the old bar?
3: Ten years since the current owners have been running it, yeah. and that was like, it, I think it's probably. Before that it was a live music venue, but it didn't have a really solid identity. Mm -hmm. So it's only in the last 10 years that it's like, kind of built a reputation. Mm -hmm. And like, the 10 year Mm -hmm. anniversary was celebrated with a whole week of secret shows that were announced last minute. Lots of big bands like Gold Class, The Peep Tempel, Graveyard Train, Cash Out and The Last Train. All of those bands coming back to headline shows there to celebrate where they've started.
0: I don't know much about Manchester as Mm -hmm. a music scene, but in the Johnny Marr book, well, first of all, he says that all the bands he was in, Smiths included, they just didn't do pubs. They didn't go to pubs. Mm-hmm. They didn't play at pubs. They yep. were not that kind of band. Yeah. They played at clubs. A club which the mm-hmm. most uh, pivotal one Has for them the is end the end, of. end of. Yeah, yeah. and then that seemed That's to be hour party people. to have be been mm-hmm. defined a particular place and time yeah. mm-hmm. and it was tied I wouldn't say this genre was necessarily narrowly defined, but it, certainly to outsiders. Um, yeah. They just—is it still going? I don't know. Oh, it might be a museum, um, piece, it is a museum piece now. Museum I think there. it's there, but not Manchester. there. The, the hacienda. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no,
3: it hasn't been going for decades. Yeah. So, so they yeah, really just did—they did,
0: they did the '80s, '90s, stopped, and that was—and so it was so famous. And then I assume people still do live music in Manchester, but like, not there, and. To actually be a music venue and keep going for decades is a rarity. Yeah, I that's
3: Big why that's Yeah, so, um, like, celebrated. Yeah.
0: Next, in two This Must Be The Place episodes, David and I retrace some of the walks in a 1980 book, Melbourne on Foot, 15 Walks Through Historic Melbourne, by Professor Graham Davison of Monash University. So here we are with Graham Davison in St Kilda, a suburb that's long been associated with the live music scene, well, certainly in past decades, and which is now largely gentrified. It also has a longer history of change and reinvention, as illustrated by a discussion here of the George Hotel, key venue for bands known as the Seaview Ballroom in the early 1980s.
5: Are we going? Okay, so we're standing here on the, on the corner of Grey and Fitzroy Street, St Kilda, just with the station behind us. We're looking at the George Hotel, which
6: actually is two buildings, I guess, isn't it? That's right. There's the, the corner, butt is late 1880s, and then it was added to in the 1920s. Yes. So uh, and this, I mean, we, we can imagine that we're arriving from the country for our summer holidays because this was a hotel that was oriented to St Kilda in the days when it was a seaside resort. And the it's interesting that they, that addition was made in the nineteen twenties. It, it obviously indicates that you know the holiday trade was still yes, alive in yes. that in that period. But it, it's quite a contrast in styles, isn't it? You've got Very opulent eighteen eighties with more of the more austere. Yes, it is nineteen twenties building. So when I mean, so your book came
5: out in nineteen eighty, and and yeah. like probably the year after, I was going to this hotel on a regular basis as a teenager because that was known as the cv ballroom in uh, 81 82 and it does have a really impressive um, ballroom in it does it yes it's quite extraordinary when i went there there was a lot of um i mean famously the the old residents of the uh of the george would uh, be wandering around in the foyer of this big music Meaning, like, venue they were
0: old or they just lived there no they home. were old uh-huh.
5: both yeah it became a kind uh-huh. of roomy house yeah, exactly yeah. so yeah. you'd have old people wandering around in their pajamas and dressing gown <laughs> in amongst <laughs> you know i mean not okay. quite punky types but you know more or less that that sort of whatever passed for fashionable young people stuff in uh, 1981 yeah. and it was uh, you know i mean i was going there underage in both the upstairs part the big area the big ballroom area and the downstairs which was the the smaller which is also a music uh, venue area so so I I guess I'm you know
6: you were probably seeing more of the low life than I was. Yeah, quite possibly <laughs> yeah yes I know
5: I remember um, I was I'd moved to Sydney in like 83 or 84 and uh, someone was shot in the street Yes. Uh, relating you know it was related somehow to, to yeah. the, the venue at that stage and uh, my grandmother sent me a newspaper clipping of the you know the incident and saying you know didn't you used to spend time here yeah. but um the george is also and you, you know you mentioned this in in the book too that hal porter worked there yes. you know, the novelist hal porter worked there in the 40s 50s? yes that's right yes and yeah. uh and he talks i mean i think he's talking about it as a bit of faded grandeur as oh well very much so yeah. Yeah, I, yeah and
6: he thinks of it as well of course the 40s was a bad time in some ways this is and also wartime. this was yes. a period when st kilda became a bit of a magnet for um, at the time when American troops were stationed in in Melbourne. A lot of people came down and and you might remember there's um, that wonderful series of paintings by Albert Tucker called Images of of Modern Evil were set in in St Kilda so you often get you know Luna Park as part of the background and also this kind of area so it it, the the 40s and 50s was probably the low point in the history of St Kilda in many respects yes it's come back now of course and it's now I noticed that it's now called the bar is called Freddie Wimpole's Uh, Wimpole, Frederick Wimpole was the person who first uh, built it. He saw the the chance of attracting pretty well, you know, well-to-do clientele. But it then went through a bit of a down phase, and it seems to be back on a bit of a bit of an up.
2: Did you
0: say this quote before that uh, described it as the Titanic that missed the iceberg? Debbie yes. <laughs> and Pat. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes.
5: Let's, let's walk up. Okay. We'll walk up, Gray, as per the uh, yep. the, okay. the plan yeah, here. This is grey Street.
0: So that was St Kilda. Here we are, David and I, in a different walking tour episode, this time of Richmond, again retracing the 1980 book Melbourne on Foot. Here we are visiting Bridge Road and then the Berry Street house featured in the 1986 film Dogs in Space, which itself was based on a share house full of musicians in the late 1970s. The house is now a multi-million dollar house in a multi-million dollar area. We're discussing that history but also the longer signs of a history of Richmond's Victorian era architecture and factories, which is more what the Melbourne on Foot book dealt with.
5: Yeah, McDonald's. Cool. Are you thinking what I'm thinking?
0: That we're not going to eat there later. <laughs> Perhaps. A lot of cheap eats around here. Five dollar pizza. I think
5: there's cheap eats and there's super expensive eats. Vietnam town. Yeah, so that was a really interesting thing, which obviously. Your first experience of Richmond is very different from my Greek experience because I don't even I don't know where the Greek presence is in Richmond these days. Maybe some sporadic bits and pieces. Wasn't there
0: a venue called the Greek or Greek well? theatre
5: up the road, yeah. yeah. It was a it was a cinema just behind us, a few blocks. It was a uh, I think it was a cinema in the what, 50s and 60s. So it was it was where you'd go to see Greek films, mm. and then it became a venue. I saw. A, I saw a few bands there, but it was it was mainly when I was living in Sydney that was on Friday. So where are we now? We're in Barry Street, mm-hmm. and we're going to the Dogs in Space House, which back in 1980 was not for some reason not known as such
0: because they hadn't made the film.
5: Yet. Because they hadn't made the film. Yet. When
0: did they make Dogs in Space?
5: Uh, they made it in 1986 and 1987. And the, it, the events that is it's mentioned. based on. Um, would have well it was oh, This looks
0: familiar now, okay. But um, is it this one?
5: This is the house. Yeah. But they do actually say um that sorry. Look,
0: someone's written dogs in space on oh, the right. tour. So, so cool.
5: helpful. Oh, yeah, just in case. Um the two-story wooden house facing Eucalyptus Street shows the efforts of one speculative builder to make the most of his small plot of land. True. True. enough. Photo. What do you think, when you see it in the movie, you don't think about this street being so incredibly narrow? But no.
0: Is. And it's funny because it's narrow and it faces on another narrow street. That's odd. Yeah. Not many houses do that.
5: Well, I think I think that's just what Graham's su- suggesting in his, when he's talking about this house, that it's, it's kind of um, making the most of the visibility from... Bridge Road that you can look down the street and go, I'd like to buy that, oh, yeah. that very impressive big house down You know
0: there. what I like about the street? I mean, you can edit this, I'll out. Um, it's so narrow that you can't even park cars on it, so it, it yeah. just feels very calm.
2: Yeah.
0: They've only managed to fit quite a few garbage bins on the street, but no room for any cars.
5: That's right. There's and the, uh, um, the Polaco sign up there, which is, is not mentioned in the book either.
0: And the Eucalyptus Street, is that named for that factory we are hearing out oh, before? The
5: yeah. Mm, it could
0: be. I right. And we've got an authentic nineteenth century baby squalling, as they said. Yes. Look at this look at these street junk. Pots.
5: That, you know why that baby's crying? Because it's been we're left here. alone. No, it's been left alone. <laughs> well <'Cause> it's right, <laughs> his mother went to work. Going to
0: actually. work in the eucalyptus factory. Look tiny little kid yeah. dolls furniture or something.
2: Yeah.
0: Rotten. Teddy Yeah, this is a typical Richmond planning application. Is
2: it? Part demolition
0: demolition and construction of a two-storey extension with rooftop terrace and basement. So it's sort of that, what do they call it, Uh, iceberg house thing. It'll look the same at the front, but inside it'll become something else. In another episode of This Must Be The Place where the connection to the Dogs in Space film and the music scene it recalled, David and I interviewed Charles Chuck Mayo. Charles was a musician in the band The Ears that the film Dogs in Space was based on, and he lived in the Berry Street share house in Richmond, as well as starring in the Dogs in Space film, which more famously starred Michael Hutchinson of In Excess. Interestingly, the payment from Chuck's small role in the film was enough for a deposit on a house in Northrop. Charles now runs an olive farm with Khalid, But here he is reflecting on his life around Melbourne's Little Band's music scene of the late 70s and 80s, the pubs they played at and the houses they lived in while, amazingly, on the doll. Charles, or Chuck, describes himself as a, quote, star of stage, screen and doll office. And he's now a co-owner of an olive farm. We're shown into the house, which is a converted school portable, and we immediately start discussing the 1986 film, Dogs in Space it's a film set in Melbourne's little band scene in
2: 1978 Uh, I love Dogs
0: in Space it's also largely set in this huge old terrace house in Richmond which is an actual share house that Charles lived in Charles shows us his copy of the Dogs in Space DVD signed by the director Richard Lowenstein
7: twice possession (laughs) gee that was fun paid well too got a house deposit together out of that Really? Yep. I'm impressed. Uh, well, equity rates. Richard struck a deal with equity so that he could put a lot of his, um, fake friends who weren't actors in mm. to give the thing verisimilitude, as long as he employed a certain number of established equity actors, which is why, mm. uh, Chainsaw Man, Chris Hayward, Hayward is in it, and, mm. other, and Joe Camilleri and people like that.
2: Mm.
7: And funnily enough, while we were making the picture, the character that Joe Camilleri was depicting actually still lives in the street. Yeah. <laughs> and I think he thought his worst nightmare had come true and everyone had moved back in. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was standing there glaring balefully at us for six months. So
0: how long were people actually living in that house? You know? oh, off and on about three years. Yeah. Had a floating
7: population, had eight bedrooms or something. And there was always sort of a random number of people flying around the place. Did you live
0: there? yep yeah and how long do you live there for about six months yep. and what's the first you heard of dogs in space then, the movie yeah the proposal was richard Lamsband when said...
7: richard picked me to be in it playing mm-hmm. myself and i said oh yeah because he said the only other uh the only actor drummer i could find is vince Colossino and he's not really right
5: <laughs> <laughs> so you're the only you were the only person who actually played like who was in the ears who played member of the dogs in space band yes that, that's yeah yep so um yeah that must that gives you a special status that's uh that's quite that must have been really unusual it was like time travel i've got yeah. to do all, a lot
7: of the same things you know all over again it's very very strange
2: because
0: it was eight years later
7: yeah yeah uh oh. yeah no six years later yeah most of the events depicted in the film happened in 1979 1980.
5: Did, did your character have a were you given a an outline of what your character was like? Yep. What what did it, did it feel ugly, arrogant,
7: bad complexion? <laughs>
0: <laughs> your one of your lines I heard before was, Fucker hate parties, where's the booze? Yeah.
3: Let's put it this way: he, he, I've been told that he wasn't really acting
0: all that hard. That uh-huh. time, <laughs> no, it, was, it wasn't
7: much of a stretch. For him. No.
0: So, what did you do after? So, you're in the Ears, but yep. then you're in a bunch of other bands, right? Yep. Yeah.
7: Justin War Crimes, Chaos, Olympic Sideburns, Dorian Gray, uh, Blackburn, a band called White Trash, another band called Taking the Veil. Um, oh. Go back through the records. Through Jesus, you and everything. Oh, well, it was, that's just the way everybody rolled back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Basically, there's this floating population of musicians.
7: Some of these are not mine, for example, Russian folk songs. Mm-hmm. Keep that one as a souvenir. Peter and Wolf Ditto. You know, had no hand in Ivan Rebrov's uh, stuff. So, yeah, look at Sideburns, Dorian Gray, Secret Copies. I'll do it again. No, I didn't have much to do with that. one carry on either. Taking the veil. was
2: taking out the, the,
7: the, the dogs in space. No, I just wrote it for them. Oh. Yep, no, that's about it. I kept uh, samples of the recorded output, obviously. It plays the... i just pretty actually you done
0: You It plays the record player. <laughs>
7: No, I saw the record player last year. Great
2: downsize.
0: David is actually editing a book about the film Dogs in Space and about related topics around inner cities, creativity, gentrification. You'd have to ask him for the details or buy it when it comes out. Anyway, Charles was an early member as the drummer of the band The Ears around which the film Dogs in Space is based. Although in the film, they're not The Ears, they're Dogs in Space. He basically plays himself in that film. David knows a lot about the years and all these interconnected bands and asked Charles a bit about how they got together. Maybe you could
5: tell us a little bit about the, the very early days of the Ears and how you, found, how you met those people. Did you go to school with those guys? Or? No,
7: no, they all went to St Kevin's. Mm. Um, I went to one of the opposition schools and I was introduced to them by a friend of mine called Philip who kind of collected odd people and they didn't come much older than the people who formed the ears. Mm -hmm. And he said, you should come and meet these people, they're really strange. Um, So I did and I discovered I liked them a lot better than the people I was hanging around with previously. So I kind of uh, migrated and I auditioned for the ears using a a plastic jar full of sugar. (laughs) (laughs) So they discovered I could keep rhythm, more importantly I had a car so... Nobody knew how to play a note. As was the fashion at the
0: time? If you didn't know, you did you hide it? People that were musicians tried to act like they didn't know how to play. Or well, you it? had to,
7: otherwise people would hang it on you.
0: Yeah, try hard. Yeah, so. What kind of venues did you play at? The
2: f- or first. What was your first? The live? first
7: one we played was at a, a loft in Rankins Lane.
3: Oh, that's where I used to live.
7: <laughs> I went to yeah. it at the same loft. Uh, could well be. I couldn't. I couldn't oh. point it out now. It's, those brain cells are all long gone um the next place we played was a chap called paul elliott it was his house in footscray he's kind of a melbourne music heavyweight of various types and then the usual collection of um you know pubs around the inner city circuit like the Exford uh, 475 club ballroom of course jump club maybe you know places like that i think you've already mapped them all anyway that
0: was you, yeah you've yeah.
5: probably got a better idea of where we played than i do and where the shows like um was there a measure of improvisation there, or was it? Did you have a set by the time you started playing, which you actually have a bunch of songs that you would?
7: Oh yeah, yeah. We, we went. Uh, we we started working with maybe 12, 13 songs. Yeah. That got up to eighteen or nineteen. So we had a bit of a selection. Yeah. Um, most of them were pretty terrible. Some of them were really good. You need to be careful about which ears you're talking about. Because I, I, I was in the very first version right. of the yeah, ears, yeah, which yeah. is like the industrial dataist version. Yeah, yeah. And then they went to the kind of bubblegum mm. wannabe, you know, pop star version, pop star and version. I've yeah. had nothing to do with them since then.
0: So you left because they were changing
5: direction? No, I got checked out.
7: Oh. Probably because I wasn't any good. It was it was a pretty fair cop, I think.
5: Yeah. How did they do it? How did they check you out? Uh,
7: incompetently.
5: Right.
7: But... Um, I think both sides are pretty relieved in the end.
5: I was just I, I was wondering that because I just saw that there was the scene that because we had just watched about half the film a couple of hours ago, um, which is probably about the fifteenth time for me. But um, the um, the scene where Nick Needle's character is thrown out of the band, yeah, and I thought it, I thought that's really done you know far too sensitively. It's like he's actually told, <laughs> um, you know, and. Um, no, it was much more brutal back in the
7: day. Brutal, yeah. As yeah. you'll be well aware. But that's really not the point. I mean, nobody had management training or did exit interviews or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's basically course. just you're not in the band anymore. Piss off. i yeah. have <laughs> got another guy,
5: he's better. And then, you, and then from your point of view, you know, I mean, some people probably just said, yeah, fuck it, I'm going to go and, um, you know... Do accounting, but you like ended up being in like ten other bands anyway. So and you know, IT so I don't know whether uh, it's really yeah. that. <laughs> <ever. Yeah.
7: laughs> all <right>. Well, somehow, <laughs> despite being back in those days a pretty terrible drummer, I'd accumulated some kind of reputation. I'm not exactly sure for what, mm. but all these people came asking me to join the band, so I did. Probably. And the are. interesting part about the people <laughs> who got <laughs> thrown out of the years, eventually Sam threw everybody out. There right. wasn't a single original member, I think, apart from Kathy. Well, no, Kathy wasn't the original bass player. That was a chap called um, Ian Godstein. Um, but, anyway, by the end of it, he turned over basically the whole crew and they still weren't successful, mm. which leads me to the suspicion that the right person hadn't been thrown out yet. Mm. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I never said anything about that until yeah. this very day.
2: <laughs>
7: Somehow, I don't think getting rid of all the crews, you know, was the correct solution to the problem that they had, which is that they just weren't quite good enough to get up to the next level. Yeah.
5: Who would have been the ear's contemporaries when you were, who would you have seen as your, you know, who would you play on with, who would you be? Crime in the City Solution, oh, yeah. um,
7: any of the little bands you care to mention, right. we did quite a few of
5: those. So, you hung out with the little bands, people? Oh, yeah, they were fun. Yeah. Yeah.
7: And insane. Mm. Yeah. Um, I don't know, once again, I haven't kept much in the way of that sort of documentation. Um, if I had it to refer to, I could tell you who we played with, but uh, a lot of the time, because the shows were so long, there might be four or five bands in the night, a lot of the time you go somewhere else and do something until maybe an hour before you are supposed to play. So a lot of the time I might not have known who we were on with.
0: So by the time Dogs in Space was being made, you were playing in different bands by that stage, right?
7: Uh by eighty six I was just about at the tail end of things. Yeah. Um I actually I think at that point I was in a band called Blackburn. Um
5: Such a good name I haven't
7: heard of Um didn't last long, went for about nine months, had very, very interesting set list which included a lot of stuff in odd time. 7-Eleven time, we used to call it, (laughs) Um, and played a couple of surprisingly well-received gigs and then just kind of disappeared. Um, The the driving force behind Blackburn was a chap called um, uh, Lockie Lockwood, who you might have heard of. He was in... um, a couple of really well-known bands whose name now escapes me but um, he now works in a recording studio I think he was a colleague of Tony Cohen's until Tony passed away a couple of years ago
0: So in Dogs and Space you're recreating a world of six-ish years earlier Did that make the time before seem more glamorous and interesting, (laughs) reliving it? Uh, No, it was close
7: enough that I could still remember how shit it all really was
0: Mm
2: -hmm. The
7: thing that struck me the most though when we went to, you know wherever it was, Armstrong's or somewhere, and started recording the soundtrack. Yeah. I said to Sam at the time, because Sam did the guide vocal for Michael Hutchins, I said to Sam, imagine what we might have achieved if we'd had those resources back then, Yeah. and also been able to play, and he went, hurt. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's right.
7: Because of course, we'd, we'd all sort of learned our trade in the yeah. six years in the meantime. Yeah. Um, and in my opinion, the soundtrack is... Probably the best versions of those songs you'll ever hear.
0: With Michael Hutchins singing? Hmm? With Michael
7: Hutchins singing. He sings one song. Oh okay, yeah. No, he, he didn't um grace us with his presence during the recording sessions. He ducked yeah. his vocals on later on. Yeah. <laughs> they just took the tapes
6: to wherever he was, I think. Yeah. yeah. In
0: So
7: while you're in these
3: bands,
7: did you have a bedroom? Uh, uh no. Fish life, yes, that's use.
3: But you could actually live on the door
0: back then. Yeah, yeah. that's important. Well if there bond. was enough of you in a single house. Yeah. Mm. You be in a share house. Or you And in also a
7: also rent and stuff was so much cheaper. Mm. For example, Joe Kennedy and about uh, eight of her mates rented out one of those mansions on Glenford Road. <laughs> you know, one of those 12-bedroom, yeah, yeah. yeah. two-ballroom, three-kitchen places. Mm. And the whole joint cost them something like 150 a week. Mm. Wow. So the eight of them were paying a very small proportion of their unemployment benefit for accommodation, and then the rest just for having fun. And, of course, looking for work.
2: Yeah.
5: Mm. We um, we had a little conversation about rent. Oh, oh rain dogs. Okay. I forgot about them. Because um, in Dogs in Space there's an exchange where someone says their apartment costs fifty. 50 a week, 50 a week which is a fortune. Yeah, that's
0: So I'm looking back further at Melbourne's music history, um, in this clip David spoke with Kia Reeves at the Clunes Book Fair about his book Dig, Australian Rock and Pop Music 1960 to 1985.
4: For our, for our session, thanks Jeff, we're, we're live, um, we've just been serenaded by the Wesley Band with a medley of In Excess songs, so it's quite appropriate that we welcome David Nichols to talk about his new book, DIG, Australian Rock and Pop Music, 1960 to 1985. David, I'll just, just begin with a broader conversational point, you know, what led you to write this book? What led me to write this book here, thank you for
5: asking and thank you for everything, um, I was led to write it by a phone call I had with my publisher about 11 years ago where uh, he said to me there's a lot of people in around the world who are familiar with various aspects of Australian popular music but they don't understand how it links together and that's the kind of that was basically the commission how does it link together as a uh, you know in Australia and you know, I guess the, it's the you know the one tenth of the iceberg that they see in other countries. You know what's what's going on below the surface, as it were.
4: Yeah, r- rock and pop music, is, I guess, is a soundtrack to many people's lives, um, <laughs> for better or
5: worse. Yeah, yeah.
4: yeah. Um, and you, you begin with 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 you know the beginnings of the 1960s. Can you tell us how you broke that down chronologically? Besides setting up for a second volume, I, it was the original commission. The original idea was
5: f- was. 50 years, a 50-year study, and I was kind of extrapolating. I guess it was around 2004, 2005 that I was originally asked to do it. So I thought it'll take me about five years to do it, and I'll finish in 2010, and I'll like you know write, I'll land appropriately right at the at the moment that uh, the book ends will be the moment that the book comes out. It was a stunningly naive. Uh, idea in many ways and one was of course as you can see what, you, what you've got there is a brick I, almost um, 600 pages yeah and it could have been a lot longer of course and so I um, very quickly I realised 50 years you know I couldn't do 50 years justice uh, and I uh, so I figured that I'd go for volume 1 25 years and volume 2 is you know a, a future fantasy that may never transpire and um, and so uh, at a certain time, yes, I, I broke it down to the twenty-five years. And I I guess I started in nineteen sixty, partly as a kind of uh, passive-aggressive stamping of my foot about there's no there's no proper time to start anyway. So I could have started in nineteen twenty. Really, it's really uh, you know there's no there's no there's no right time to start. Uh, but the sixties, I guess, was is a time that I figured my my perceived audience would be interested in and I was railing a bit against that idea of 1956 as the birth of rock and roll because if for no other reason than um, my friend uh, and uh, quite a well-known writer Clinton Walker was at the time uh, constantly talking about finding the earliest Australian rock and roll record which I think he was going back to 1948 or 1949 and I'm like well you know it's it's one of those things it's too hard. To know when to start, so mm, I just picked sure. a, a random
4: moment. Well, you, you sort of start, I Mr. sudden You're talking about obviously about Australian pop and rock, but you start with a little discussion about Percy Granger and then you move into the '60s and talk about people like the BGS, and yeah, you know, it's you know, and the influence of the of of the US and the British invasion, but at the same time, you're talking about uniquely Australian mm. responses to rock and pop. Yep.
5: Yes, and I figure, well, uh, you know, Australia is um, part of the Western world. Percy Granger was undoubtedly born in Australia, lived most of his life in other countries, and was sort of internationally famous, uh, not as a composer, but as a um, a performer. Uh, And his most famous piece of music is, uh, I think I describe it as faintly nauseating, a... uh, a piece of music called "English Country Garden," a jaunty little thing, and uh, but the reason that I was interested in Granger was partly because he was so experimental. He was, he was very he was very interested in experimental mechanized music, and there's you know the, his kind of uh, robot machines, music making machines that he uh, he created in the 40s uh, are in the some of them are in the Granger Museum. So you know he's a he's a world player. He was also. He really struck my fancy partly because he was so interested in modern music, like right up to his death, and he'd go and see rock and roll movies. You know, I don't know how old he was when. He, I can't remember how old he was when he died. He was in his 70s maybe. and he'd go to the movies and see rock and roll movies because he, he, he kind of gelled in some way with that stuff. Um, as far as people like the BGs are concerned, you know, Australia made them, and yes, they came from the UK, so did. Many, you know, many people came from other parts of the world, came here and being placed in the, you know, the melange, uh, or perhaps the blamange, they, they made it, they, it made them and they made, you know, something uh, unique. They had the opportunities here, which they probably wouldn't have had in uh, Manchester or on the Isle of
4: Man, for God's sake. Mm, yeah. And does the other bands for that era, or just stick with the 60s for a moment, what struck you about you know, Little Patty or Yeezy Beats and those sort of acts?
5: I hesitate to, to talk about um, people being, you know, founded in a crucible of a solid live circuit because I, you know, I'm, I think that that's that's possibly a little bit uh, of a, a subjective viewpoint. Although I know it does come up a lot, and I can see, I mean, from my own experience, you know, going to the UK in the mid eighties, uh, having being having a very blasé attitude myself about. Uh, the, the ability of bands to play live and seeing some of the bands that I saw in the UK in the mid 80s who absolutely without a doubt could not play live to save their lives um, I guess there is you know from my own experience some element of truth in that so I guess that's one thing that I'm saying think about people like uh, the Easy Beats are a great example of you know they just play, they could just play all the time you could actually apparently you could do that um, bands like the Loved Ones uh, apparently like they they do they do tours of Melbourne, you know, every weekend. They play three shows a night in three different locations, and you know it, it uh, ultimately probably killed them as a band. But it uh, while they were while they were going, they they were actually getting plenty of work and plenty of uh, opportunity to you know hone their chops, so to speak. So that's one that's one thing. Uh, I think that. It's one of the things that I've returned to again and again in the, in the book. And it's, yeah, it's sort of about music, but it's also just about uh, Australian culture generally. That, you know, we always know what's going on. Whereas, you know, if I, I'm just going to pluck a place out of the air and denigrate it without necessarily really knowing much about it. But, you know, in Tennessee, to, as a totally random place, they know a lot about what happens in Tennessee but they don't necessarily know what happens in in the rest of the Western world and they don't think about it that much we we often put ourselves down in this country and have done for decades or centuries as being provincial but you know we are actually very cognizant of the rest of uh, the rest of the world a lot of the time and maybe we get that information you know six months later but we get it and we co-opt it and we we make something of a response of our own Yeah, just, and
4: just Just on sort of moving on a little bit from there, when you were writing the book, there's little breakouts, well, there's chapters, really, of of various bands, and I noticed that some of them have massive success, the Easy Beats, (laughs) ACDC, others, such as The Moodist, you probably know Claire Moore and Dave Graney from later acts, or Pip Proud, one of your first loves, these sort of acts, they're they're not as well-known, but they still have a major contribution to make. So how did you go about just choosing who to put in as the... As the breakout, if you like. So yeah,
5: and the, and that's it's a good question. And the breakouts are uh, they were they were troublesome. Um, I chose them largely because I thought they were individual acts that enabled me to make a, a larger point. So the the biggies, uh, you know, I don't have a I don't have a breakout chapter on Nick Cave. I don't have a breakout chapter on Excess, and I can't even think, you know, the other. Uh, I do have one on ACDC, which, uh, between you and me, was I believe at the insistence of my publisher. But um, well, when I say between you and me, I guess between you. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so largely, that was the idea. It was about it was about making a point, uh, f- establishing someone or so, uh, an act or a, an individual who was actually doing something. Interesting that advances the whole, uh, you know, advances the narrative and advances the progress of the, you know, the cultural, uh, you know, the the zeitgeist.
0: Finally, here's the last selection of This Must Be The Place Best Of, Hits Out, curated music stuff about live music in Australian cities. In this episode, David interviewed Lachlan of a band called The Ocean Party about life in a touring band today. The Ocean Party tour in a converted taxi, in large part because hotels really aren't within their budget, and they played a lot of country towns with mixed results.
5: It's me and me alone this episode, except I'm here with Nancy and with um, uh, Lachlan Denton from The Ocean Party, who uh, I asked to, uh, to come on the show this time, partly just because I've always been so much in admiration of... You know, not only um, the work of the band, but also uh, the way that they work like such a, a well-oiled machine. Um, they're such a, an efficient touring band. And I've, I've always been really fascinated by this kind of... Um, would you call it a lifestyle, Lachlan? I don't
8: know if I'd go that far. Yeah, no, actually I would go that far. I'd call it a lifestyle.
5: How long have you been doing this?
8: Uh... To the extent that we do it, probably maybe six years. Mm. Probably since the second record that we put out. I mean, every t- we've kind of just gotten more and more involved with the touring thing as we've kind of gone along.
5: And one of the things that has always really intrigued me. I know you don't just tour with uh, the Ocean Party. You, know, you have other bands and, and projects as well. But so you know, we don't necessarily have to limit ourselves to that. Uh, little group, but uh, sorry, that group, that huge, that mega group, but um, it's 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 really uh, it's fascinating to me how, for instance, you've you know you've created a kind of you've got a you've got a touring van, mm-hmm. and you've you've kitted it out, and it's kind of like you, you're kind of self sufficient in a in a manner of speaking. Is that a is that a fair way of putting it?
8: Yeah, that's totally that's the idea. Mm. The, absolutely, the idea is to be as self-sufficient in an age of well no money in yeah. live music especially for the sort of band that we are the sort of niche popular music that we play
5: You're niche but you um you do how can i put it you go out of you go out of the way you go to out of the way places like in in an australian context a lot of people would be satisfied with you know, Melbourne bands are satisfied to go to Sydney, you know, once a year maybe. Yeah. Those kinds of things. But you you guys go all over. You go to all kinds of weird places and you find places to play, which I think is really uh, fascinating. Maybe you could, um, I could just, I'd like to, I'd like to understand why you do that and, and what you
8: find when you go to those odd places. Um, we usually find, well... I mean, I, I think that the the main thing I would say is that I, I I don't think that that kind of effort to to play in smaller places really has as much to do with actually actually playing the music as it does going to these places. I think um, we've all spoken about it before in the band that you know the the best part about to, about touring is the experience of going to weird and wonderful small towns and and you know meeting people and 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 probably just the um i don't know just the just the freedom you have of not being not being known as not not nearly as Mm self-conscious in these sort of places and and people and you know outside of outside of the city i think there is um i mean it's it's a pretty uh it's probably been said to death but you know it's it's pretty un- unpretentious, and I think with that, it's it's a comfortable environment to to put yourself in, for me at least.
5: Because you're, well, you're sort of from the country, right?
8: I am, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm from Tarkata originally. And yeah. Then, um, uh, via Tarkata, via Wagga, I guess. But mostly, yes. I sp- grew up, I spent, you know, the first... 13, 14 years of my life in Tarkata, which is only a town of three hundred people and quite an isolating place. Did you
5: feel like? Uh, do you feel a kind of empathy for those, for the people in those, let's say, the young people? Maybe not all young people, but the people in those, in those kinds of towns.
8: Now, when you pass through, and and you know, how do you relate to them? Yeah, I, I totally, totally uh, feel empathy for. For those people, I mean, that's that's, you know, that is what I, that's utterly what I come from, mm. you know. It's, um, it's, it's em- empathy is definitely the the, the perfect word. Um, it's really easy to, it's easy to demonize people from, um, from rural Australia sometimes, um, as.
5: Rural people across the world. Uh, Yeah,
8: yeah, I would say so. Yeah, Yeah. it's easy. So, yeah, I guess it's kind of. I feel comfortable around those people. I mean, it's not. It's not. They're not. It's not the. um, At this stage in my life, it's not the life that I I desire. Um, And it's and it's not that I also don't find the. um, I don't find some of the um, views and and uh, yeah, yeah, I guess views of people in, in those situations irritating and and you know and and i'm not i'm not stoked about that sometimes but then again i'm not particularly stoked about the lack of empathy that people in the city have either so you know it's and you know they feed into one another i think
5: and maybe you know what i'm talking about when i'm when i'm saying that like being on the road is in a kind of it's a it's a weird state of mind like you yeah you are a bit you're a bit stateless. yes you do have to be there at a certain time whatever you have to get there for sound check then you you sit around doing nothing for hours, mm. that kind of thing. And I guess you have no, um, you have a certain range of commitments. Definitely, you have a commitment, I suppose, to your audience, whoever they may be, later at, late at night. Mm-hmm. You know, during the day, you're like you're thrown on each other as you know you're the only um, social interaction that you have. That kind of stuff. It is it's a pretty weird, rarefied existence.
8: Yeah and i think the other thing is uh, a lot of the time you don't really know what you're going to get when you get there that night you know you've probably you've, you've booked you know you've booked these shows via email or maybe via phone call if you've had to kind of go to that extent but you've never really got the full details of what you're kind of getting yourself into mm-hmm. so how serious even the show is you know sometimes you kind of you know you could drive all day to something where you almost feel like you might as well not be playing. It's like, you know, you don't know who's doing... You, 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 you're not really quite sure who's doing who the favour. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yes. who's actually... Yeah. I think that's just the nature of this, you know, indie music. I mean, I don't... Sometimes you drive all day to a show. And I don't know if you've felt this way before, but... And the last thing you want to do is talk to anyone when you get there. I don't want uh, to talk to another yes. band. I don't want to, you know, like, I've just... I can talk to you especially because you've spent so much time in close proximity to people that you know quite well yeah. and you're so so used to that level of like comfortable conversation that the last, one, the last thing you want to do is reach out and talk to someone else yeah um so and that sort of thing but but I guess often it's about pushing through those things and doing what you have to do and then playing the show and then you know often that's quite rewarding and on the other side of it it feels pretty good and often it's crap and you <laughs> wish you're at home but you know
2: okay
0: so that was a, a long selection of best of reruns where this must be the place podcast has talked about live music in Australian cities particularly I put it together in part for upcoming event for the festival of urbanism it's going to be held on September 2nd at the Toffin town in Melbourne and I'm sure potentially by the time you listen to it it's already happened but it does happen to be in the future you can consider coming register at the Festival of Urbanism site. Thank you for listening to This Must Be The Place.